work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where we set out to uncover the good stuff, even when the world isn't always feeling so good. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Round and Round the Garden. And if you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We love making it and we love you keeping on supporting it. So back to today's theme, and it's what it says on the tin, it is gardening. Unlikely celebrity gardeners include Kylie Jenner, Gwen Stefani, Jake Gyllenhaal and Snoop Dogg. And obviously there are ones like Prince Charles and Michelle Obama and Sting and Oprah Winfrey, but they're not unlikely. We know about them. So back to an unlikely gardening fact, the English botanist Edward Salisbury managed to grow 300 plants from stuff he'd collected in his trouser turnips including 20 different types of weeds. I went to college in Salisbury. I knew about a fair few varieties of weeds myself. The Reverend Richard Coles of ex-communards fame was given a gardening hint from one of his parishioners. If you want to make your wisteria thrive, and don't we all, just bury a sheep next to it. Yeah, Brighton, we're in Bevendine. So oh, nice. Like, yeah, yeah. In the suburb. That's my guest today. Laura Lex. Godwatery is an overly elaborate style of gardening or attitude towards gardens. I live in North London, there's people like that around here. The smell of freshly cut grass is actually a plant distress call. How do I know that? Well, thank you for asking. I know that from an episode of QI I was on. I don't like to talk about it. Without bats, there would be no tequila. Tequila is made from the agave, am I pronouncing that correctly? Agave plant, I'm sure people will let me know, which is pollinated by bats. I think that is exactly the kind of good publicity bats need after what's been happening to them the last couple of years. Orchids, I love orchids, suffer from jet lag. After a long journey, a plant that usually opens its leaves in the morning will open its leaves at night, and it will take a few days to readjust. And sales of pampas grass, this is a bit of a less innocent fact, have fallen since people have realised that swingers, yes, swingers, plant pampas grass in their front gardens to identify one another. I've got a famous neighbour with pampas grass in their front garden and I am now looking at them in rather a new light. I better not name them. Oh, it's actually wallpaper, darling. Is it? (laughs) Yeah. It was here when we moved in and at that point I didn't realise this was going to be like my gig room for the foreseeable future. Laura Lex is an award-winning comedian, actor and writer who lives in Brighton with her husband and her Jack Russell, Mackie. Talking of dogs, by the way, I got my puppy last week, Jeff. I'm absolutely knackered, but oh, how I love that dog. But back to Laura. She has had four critically acclaimed Edinburgh shows, her most recent of which, Trying and Knee Jerk, both received multiple five-star reviews. She's also appeared widely on TV and radio from Mock the Week and Live at the Apollo, 
to Hypothetical and Radio 4 Extra's The Comedy Club. Laura and I talked about writing books, prescription drugs, breakups, performing, life on the road, success, self-esteem, personal trainers, eye makeup, climate change, love, cold water swimming and Wookie Hong. But I started by asking her about writing a book during the first lockdown. I think because I sort of had to, I, um, (laughs) it was one of those things where when they offered me the book deal, it sort of like a little bit of my head was going, it's just a Twitter joke. I can't stretch it to a book deal. Like, oh and tell God. people who don't know, because it was a great Twitter joke and I can see why it spun out into a book deal, but tell people who don't know what the Twitter joke was. So I did a thread imagining being married to Jurgen Klopp um, and the idea of being married to somebody super sensible. And so every time you're anxious or like a little bit floopy about stuff, you've just got this like sexy centered person to just reassure you and fix it and uh it it sort of started with a stupid joke about if we had a baby we'd call it clip clop and then like a whole thread about my dream marriage to the most sensible (laughs) lovely man in the whole wide world and it went crazy viral just before lockdown it was the weekend before everything shut down um, it went super viral and then I ended up in lots of meetings about would you write it as a book and I sort of going like god I don't know like Ugh. and then lockdown happened and um, I sort of had to say yes so I didn't have an income anymore yeah there was so, a small detail for all of us wasn't there yeah 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 we had just um, bought a house and your partner's and, a performer too so you, yeah, you were rendered incomeless across we, the piece we had nothing so really if I couldn't write this book I was like I don't know what we're going to do so I thought yeah all right I'll give writing a go let's see how that goes um and uh yeah I I wrote really kindly to myself I sort of had the tiniest word count um aim every day just even if it was only a hundred words, just a tiny one, mm-hmm. and kind of was really flexible with myself of going, if you don't feel like writing today, that's fine. But it, you know, the job isn't going away, but don't force it on a day where it's not happening. Like, don't worry too much. Cause I just feel like if you force it on a day where it's not right, you neither rest nor work. You just funny about in the middle of both of them doing neither. So you just I described my life, neither rest nor work. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean though? You're do. not you don't quite achieve anything and then you also don't so I try and lean really hard into going, well if you're not working properly, go and rest. And if you act then you will work. Like after about an hour of sunbathing or whatever, I go, Oh I'm bored now. I actually want to do something and I go and get it on get it done. So yeah, I love I the leaning into it. I, I talk quite a lot about that with people on the podcast. I spent a lifetime until my 40s trying to really fight against anything that was telling me to down tools or that I couldn't cope. I'd be like, no, buck up, get on with it. And I realized it was such a revelation that if you do just notice it, let it in, 
you actually manage to get through it quite quickly. So I have exactly yeah. that. Like now if there's a day when I'm feeling really ropey, I just, you know, mental health wise, I just think, well, I'll just, that's fine. Just kind of go with that. And it's amazing how sometimes later in the day it switches. Whereas I think yeah. when I was fighting it, it would double down on me and go, no, listen, you are feeling bad. Yeah. But I, I honestly, I think listening to yourself, especially through something like lockdown, where it's just like, I've got no tools for how to deal with this. I don't, I don't know how to cope without being able to pop brown into my friend's house or go out or like I love my husband but we've never spent that much time together in our lives because you're both, both on the road the whole time and performing and since the day we met we've both been professional comics so mm -hmm. suddenly going to we are home all day together was hot like it was obviously parts of it were amazing but the questions it throws up about like oh god are other marriages doing better than ours should we be all over each other all the time should we be oh just so many like oh, moments because so, you've yeah. written a show it was your last show before lockdown was about the sort of pincer movement of depression and wanting to have a baby was that your last show before lockdown so, yeah penultimate to lockdown but yeah that was yeah I, I, that was my 2018 show 2018 yeah so you'd gone through so all of that in its own right if you think about that only happening two years before the pandemic mm -hmm. that's already one hell of a kind of pressure backdrop to be functioning in yeah really hard I think one of the first things I did when everything looked shaky was race back to my GP and go I would like my prescription of antidepressants back please because I've been off them for a couple of years and I was just like do you know what I'm not even gonna try and style this out like what am I gaining by not going back on them because I really recognized I remember there being a day where I text someone and they hadn't replied within 24 hours and that little tiny paranoid mm -hmm. voice that is always my first beginnings of you're on a downward babe was going what have you done to upset them how have you upset them why do they hate you like blah 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 and no rational voice was in my head at all going, maybe there's a pandemic, darling, and they're also working out how to completely reshift their life. In my head, I was like checking everything and gone, did I accidentally call them a massive bitch on live television at some point? Like, you probably <laughs> was I didn't, Laura. I swimming with them and I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, this is the sign that you're not functioning at your best. Go and get the little pills that just help you be your better self. It's funny how um, I used to have real, not judgment about antidepressants, but I didn't really get them. I used to think, why are people getting prescribed drugs until I needed them? And then I realised, mm. you know, first of all, you don't go on them. No one goes, I know what I'll do. I'll go to the GP and I'll just see if they'll give me some antidepressants. That'll be a nice thing to do today. <laughs> um, but also that it does enable you, and obviously each to their own, and some people listening may not agree with taking them, but I think it just gives you the sort of canvas in which to be able to do the good work yourself and without exactly. that you can spiral so badly so it's it just levels you out enough that then you do all the other stuff that's going to help you rather than not having any starting point I don't know yeah. how it is for you with the medication that's completely my experience of it I haven't it I don't feel like it changes me a lot other than just takes out the likelihood that I'll just escape down a little worried rabbit hole of frantically assuming I've upset everybody I've ever loved like you know that feeling do you ever I don't know if you drink but you, you that like hangover paranoia remorse. yes that thing when you wake up in the morning and you you suddenly rake over everything you did yesterday 
that's my first indication that I'm not going in a good direction is I get that without having drunk anything. I just so sort of start... waking up with a sort of sinking feeling of what have I done? Yeah, yeah. What have I done? Who have I upset? Or if people don't reply quick enough or, or and it gets ridiculous. Like I'll see two comics chatting on Twitter and think, well, I'm not friends with that. How have they got such a friendship just from, I haven't become best friends, blah, blah, blah. And you go, well, and in my rational head, I go, well, that's all right, darling. Other people are allowed to be friends. You've got friends. It's fine. But when I'm off kilter, I'll look at stuff like that and be like, oh, I've definitely done something wrong. Everybody in the industry hates me. Nobody's best friends with me. This is someone who's been voted comedian's comedian best performer in two years running, which does, as well as having a talent, mean people think you're quite a good egg. Well, they don't think I'm an asshole, but when I'm not right, oh my God, my brain absolutely convinces me that I'm like public enemy number one. It's mad. It's so reassuring for people to hear this from people like you who, I mean, you, you, you everyone knows who you are. Before you did Apollo, you were massively well regarded on the circuit and by you know numerous people not on the circuit and it's so interesting that somebody who's doing all the things that from the outside you'd look in and think anyone who wanted to start out as a stand-up would look at you as one of the people they might want to be and you are you and you're there on the inside of you going oh do you know what I think I'm a bit of a dick and I'm about to be yeah. found out <laughs> so it's, it's quite reassuring to people to know that because it's really easy it's funny I was talking to Esther Manito who did her um she was on the has she been on this yeah she has been on the podcast and she did her as you probably know first Apollo last year and mm. I started off by saying oh god you're nailing it babe you know it's I'm so happy for you she and I started out at the same time and you know there are people who are your contemporaries who you genuinely are so pleased for that they're doing well and others who you're like I can't yeah. bear it that you got that but <laughs> Esther's someone I couldn't be more delighted for and it was just so interesting to hear her go really is that what you think mm. oh god it doesn't feel like that so do you because also your persona um I one of the one of the things I noticed you for first when I was starting out and you you know we've only met a couple of times on the circuit and you've been emceeing when we've met and you've always been you know a complete darling to me and other people there making us feel really good about being there which not all MCs do to newbies so you you were absolutely lovely to me um right at the start when you saw me I think it was a funny women competition yeah, was that on the boat yeah and I just I split up with my boyfriend I and I could barely yeah. speak you were, oh yeah <laughs> yeah such a mess it, yeah I remember that yeah, anyone listening will be like, which boyfriend? Because since then I've had about another three <laughs> catastrophic breakups and I haven't even been going okay. that long. But um, but it, it, your persona as an MC and actually when you talk to you off stage is really kind of, it sounds like really naff to say sunshiny, but you're, it's a very bright, inviting, kind, lovely, warm persona that people probably wouldn't necessarily associate with being able to get into a really dark point in depression. And I've also heard you talk about the fact that even when you're talking about, you know, dicing with literally, should I should I take my own life? Should I be here? You're still doing it in a sort of like, hey, and then I was thinking, <laughs> why am I even here? And what could I do to stop it? So is there a sort of link in you? Outside, it's quite hard to see the link between those two parts of you. But does it feel like that on the inside as well? I guess I think a lot of being the sunny persona, it is who I am and I do like making people happy. But I think it probably is tied in with an anxious thing of am I good enough? And it probably... So wanting to please people? Yeah, I think I'm a bit of a people pleaser. And I'm so worried about upsetting people. I, I just hate the idea of upsetting people. And I suppose, like, 
especially with emceeing, it feels like a lot of people's expectations of an MC is that you're going to destroy people, you know, you're going to tear people apart. And you do have to do a little bit of that. You have got to be a little bit spicy getting in and sort of finding out about things. But I don't want... I don't want to upset people. <laughs> I just don't get any pleasure in that. I don't find it nice. So I I don't know. I suppose for me, like the anxiety and the depressions like side of my life and side of me, it is tied in with being super bubbly. It's that I don't want to be bringing people down and I don't want to be upsetting people. And it's pressure, I suppose, that you put on yourself, isn't it? It's that link between, well, one of the things, just going back to your emceeing, that I love about how you emcee, I do lots of emceeing now as well. And I just always find it really, when people, when an emcee almost attacks a room, I absolutely understand what you, of course, you go in and you take the piss and everyone's having a laugh at, you know, Dave's expense from accounting or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, even the person I take the piss out of, I absolutely want them to feel amazing about being there and kind of like take the piss out of you. But now you're sort of the star of the show, aren't you, Dave, kind of vibe. And I always, it amazes me when people go in so hard on audiences and, and don't make the, because actually what you want to do is say, you're fucking awesome for being here. Thank you for coming out. We can't wait to do this show for you, is the sort of underlying thing, right? In order to get the energy from the room, even when it's a really rowdy, shitty room, you sort of want the stag do to feel welcomed in. But do you, going back to the um, the sort of bubbly thing, do, one of the things I sort of learned, I had a sort of mental kind of, um, yeah, pretty much collapse in my 40s. And well, a sort of a big one and then a mini one. It's like I needed the, you know, the sequel's never as good yeah. as the original, is it? But I needed to go again to really get the messages about the changes I was going to make. But one of the things that um, I sort of, I, I did lots of group therapy at the time. And one of the things I realised with all of us was that we were all sort of trying to function so highly. And we all sort of thought we literally won't survive if we let the guard down. Like if we just go, I feel shit, something cataclysmic will happen whereas actually it had happened because we wouldn't do that yeah and the sort of the bridge between those bits of you do you find there's more you know even when you said you sort of noticed those signs you were feeling a bit paranoid and so do you find there's a bit of you now where those bits can sort of join up a bit more and help each other a bit more and it doesn't feel quite as disjointed yeah I think a lot of the ability to deal with it better comes from a place of privilege of being more secure in my career like there's a big change in being able to be honest about stuff post live at the Apollo and Mock the Week a couple of times than when your your grip on your career is as flimsy as everybody's is when you first start out especially as a woman but like so tonight I was supposed to be emceeing a gig that actually I was quite wobbly about and I was like I don't know if I desperately want to emcee that gig I'm just not sure and now I'm at a point where I can email that promoter and go do you know what it's just not for me like thank you so much for thinking of me but actually I will just spend all weekend worrying about it and I don't it's not worth it to me to waste my Saturday and my Sunday building myself up for it like let someone else do the job who won't have that feeling about it and I can actually say that now where before I'd probably have had to come up with some sort of COVID related. Oh, sorry, I've just tested positive for a weird variety that only affects today's (laughs) gig and not tomorrow's. You know, you've got to mask it. And then that's an extra layer of stress on the stress is that you're pretending it's different things than it actually is. But it comes with the privilege now that I know I can send that to a promoter and it won't put them off booking me again. Whereas 
in the first 10 years of my career, if I'd cancelled on someone and said, it's because I've got a really wobbly mental health, I think they'd have thought twice about booking me again. So I, for me, now that I am a bit more secure in my career, it's quite important to be honest so that hopefully other people with the flimsy grip still can be more honest coming through. Do you find that there's a saying no to things, though? Do you find even it, regardless of the reason that you give, whether it's authentic or not, and it's brilliant that you can now be authentic, and it isn't just privilege, it is hard won, right? I mean, you haven't just coincidentally got mocked the week a couple <laughs> no. of times. It's not like, oh, look, they booked me. I don't know how. I was a clerical error, you know. So you're there for a reason, and it's hard won, even though, yes, of course, it's we're all privileged. We can pay for therapy. We can have personal trainers. Yeah. You know, not everybody listening can, and those things really help if you're lucky enough that you can you can access them. But do you think, in t- some, I'm a promoter, um, I won't name them or even say their gender, but they're an act um, who I think cancels fairly frequently for, for mental health reasons. And a promoter who's quite a big promoter sort of said to me, do you know that person? And I, you know, I just don't think they should ever be saying they're cancelling for that reason. And I said, I think they absolutely should be saying they're cancelling for that reason. What would you sooner, they said? Would you sooner that, and their agent tends to be the one to convey the message. And I was slightly, I thought that's slightly out of kilter with the industry, I think that anyone would be basically saying come up with a better excuse than mental health I think there's probably no better excuse than mental health 100% because I don't think like I completely understand that it's not like no that's not the right way to phrase it I completely understand because if your mental health is shoddy you shouldn't be in charge of a car driving to a gig let alone a room full of people expecting something amazing absolutely and then if you've hurt your brain or your brain is hurting and your 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 hormonal balance is out in your brain do you know what's not good is to add 20 minutes of really high dopamine performance and then the crash that comes afterwards when you then go back to being alone and everything else comes flooding in it's like saying i've got a twisted ankle and someone going i don't care that's not a good enough reason to not run you've this got marathon. a marathon booked you're running it your your mental health is so affected by three hours in your on your own on a train or in the car driving then the gig then coming back and weighing up your personal performance if you know it's not good for your mental health and you can afford to not go to work that day then go do that lean into it not being good and then come back to work the next day like where it gets hard is where you physically have to go to work or the rest of life starts to collapse around you so if you're in this position of privilege that performers are oh my god book someone else there's a million comedians who cares it's interesting because a couple of my good friends my sort of age have both uh, both they don't know each other but they're both going through to they both have kind of um, jobs in the media so sort of paid on the payroll jobs and they're both taking time off at the moment because they just can't cope and it's funny whatever job you're in you think you can't do that so they are still getting paid they both are feeling really understandably nervous so the company's going to sort of penalize them will they've lost their kind of career progression will there be a sort of long-term consequence of this but I think whoever we are we think no I can't I can't dance mm. like it's not so it's really heartening to hear somebody say no you absolutely can and sometimes doing that does enable you not to go off the rails longer term so you might miss one gig yeah. but be able to do the next 20 rather than absolutely. getting yourself to the point where you need like three months off yeah yeah 
And do you think with the, um, the, the things that you do, because I sometimes find going on stage, with me it's a bit of a tipping point and I'm definitely not at the stage where I was with, um, I was on a panel show with Helen George from Call the Midwife the other day and she's also got Jack Russell and I was also doing what I did with you before we started recording and saying, <laughs> you know, do you take him everywhere? And she said, yeah, I take him everywhere. And I said, and what do you do if they don't want him to come? She goes, well, I won't do the job unless they say that he'll come. I said, the difference is Helen George. If you say that, they'll say, bring the dog. If I say that, they'll be like, great, we'll find someone without a dog so there does there does come a point but there are some times when I'm at that point of I'm not feeling great today I don't know if I can do this but we're doing the gig actually really helps me so I also yeah. get to sometimes a point of almost a sort of introvert weird shut myself off place where actually going to a gig and again I'm really lucky that because I'm in Camden in London so many gigs are within half an hour of my house so it's so much less of an undertaking and I can just go do you know what just get on the tube see how you feel you'll be all right and you'll be home in three hours but sometimes that 20 minutes on stage or the bits if you're emceeing across the evening sometimes those are like a holiday from myself because when I'm on stage I feel so good and it feels so effortless compared to life off stage does that have any resonance with you that is exactly my experience I think we might be the same person um that <laughs> from is from you're exactly... the sort of younger more glamorous version but yeah glamorous <laughs> I've seen your eye makeup I'm oh, and that's that we could do a whole episode on so eye makeup tips because I, I love it. your eye makeup uh, um, but yes makeup. Um, so in terms of yeah, that resonating, that, is my, yeah. that was my experience. So I had my big breakdown in 2017 where I got so obsessed with climate change and the climate crisis. And it all tied in with we were trying for a baby at the time and I couldn't quite reconcile um, how much I wanted a baby and children with this feeling that the planet wasn't right and I was contributing to it and I just and going on stage so i would i was just 24 7 thinking about um climate and plastic and everything and once you tune in to looking at all the things that are wrong with the world you can't take a step without something triggering that anxiety but being on stage and being asleep were the only times like luckily i didn't dream about it and being on stage i would get 20 minutes off And every day without fail, I would have 20 minutes off from these cyclical thoughts that were just unending. And then I would walk off stage and it was like a light switch had gone off. There was no coming down moment of like, no, I'd walk off stage and immediately start thinking about all the lights that had been on to power that 20 minutes and the microphone and how much electricity is used for that and how did everybody get to the venue and then sit in the car going home or on the train feeling every rumble and thinking like there's carbon in every like wheel spin but that 20 minutes that I got a break I just didn't have the headspace to talk stand-up think about the next bit of stand-up watch the audience check what I was doing and so it was just bliss and it only kind of works it's it's the ultimate mindful experience really isn't it I mean I always the the note to myself whenever I go on stage now isn't what am I going to say and have I got the right material it's just like turn up just get on the stage and turn (laughs) up and see what's happening in the room and whenever I do that it goes really well if I'm completely present and it's always when I'm even a tiny bit 
oh, what am I going to say next? And, oh, I'm just thinking about that person at the back. And shall I do the bit about Holland? You know, that's always when it goes a bit awry, even if it's just a tiny, it's almost like playing a record at the wrong speed, reference for our younger listeners, although they are all into vinyl again now, aren't they? But but there is that feeling of it. But when you look at, so achieving all the things you've achieved, and also even even in terms of your, because you got married a couple of years before you had your sort of meltdown then, did you? Yeah, yeah. You're from Somerset, right? Yeah. Because I'm from Dorset, but very near the Somerset border. Where are you from in Somerset? I'm from just outside Taunton. Oh, okay. My son now lives in Exeter. He works at Paynton Zoo, so he's down just a bit. So I spend quite. And I was um, brought up in Shaftesbury, so on the sort of Wiltshire border and not far from the Somerset border. I've got family in Gillingham. Oh, have you? Well, my parents live in Gillingham now. My parents Ah. live in Wyke in Gillingham. Oh, that's really funny. Well, there you go. Who knew there were so many female comedians (laughs) with links to Gillingham? So my dad listens to this. He'll be very pleased to know you've got links to Gillingham because he's uh, he was part of the Gillingham Town Plan, Laura. Tell that to your family. Well, if he's in the Gillingham, any sort of Dorset or Gillingham rugby scene, he'll definitely know my cousins and my uncle. He's more in the golfing scene, oh. so maybe not so not so much. Well, I think we've just lost anyone who's not got a link to Gillingham in Dorset. We should also say it's not the same as Gillingham in Kent, while no. we're boring the shit out of everyone about geography <laughs> and our origin stories. Namaste, motherfuckers! The only reason I mentioned Somerset was because I know you got married um, to Tom in Somerset. But yeah. So you've got this what on the outside, again, to somebody like me, who one of the things I definitely don't seem to be able to do in life is um, the sort of relationship thing. I seem to be doing all right at the other bits, but that bit um, leaves me uh, a little bit, you know, well, single again, basically. So when you're in a, when you're in a sort of um, functioning marriage and quite early on in that marriage, and I've met Tom a couple of times and, you know, you both seem like as I said before, good eggs, does it does it help when you're in that kind of stage of sort of obsessive cyclical thinking, but you've got someone who does unconditionally love you and who is there, does it, does it help at all having that person there? Or are you so in your own thoughts at that point that no external thing could just help sort it out? I reckon it did help. It, I reckon it helped in a like way I wasn't processing because clearly I've come through it and I got the help and he did help me massively get the help. At the time, my main memories of thinking about him were that I was just ruining his life. So just a guilt about him added to everything else. Yeah, at the time I just remember thinking, this sounds so awful, but like that leaving the planet would only improve things for him in the long run because I couldn't work out how to carry on as we were. And I was like, he's not signed up for this. Um, so there was never a pressure coming from him to get better or to, you know, he was, he's, was just the best about it. But in my head, I was like, I just love him so much. I don't want to drag him down with all this mess. Were you able to externalize that when you were, when that was going on? Did he know that you were at that absolute kind of end point? After a while. Yeah. So you were able to tell him. Yeah. He, he's great with that. Um, yeah, he he's so easy to talk to. We do, we do like amazingly talk about everything because it's so funny being with somebody who has absolutely no mental health issues. When you're, you're quite opposite, then, aren't you? In height, yeah. in mental health, facial yeah. hair. I notice you're quite different. <laughs> I'm getting increasingly less <laughs> different in the facial hair region. Those I've chin got tips spikes for that, Laura. Are... I'll share them oh. with you offline. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll swap you dog tips for chin hair tips, please. You're very welcome. <laughs> yeah, he's so stable. He's so kind and just 
like that that's the thing that blows my mind about tom is that he's just his his kindness is his first go-to and like especially when we first got together i was so used to being in terrible relationships where something minor would go wrong and then you'd argue for hours because that's what people in passionate relationships do and then when i got together with tom i was like oh, i don't know if this is gonna work out because like we'd fall out about something and he'd just go oh, i'm really sorry i didn't mean to upset you um hey i'm sorry and i'd be like what oh what oh so you found not, a unicorn among we're men. We're not going to shout or anything. So yeah. nothing felt... In, it's interesting. So it didn't feel that the relationship was in jeopardy. You actually thought we can have a rumpus and we'll still be together. Yeah, but then that made me feel like the relationship was in jeopardy because I was going, Ma, maybe this isn't passionate enough love because we're not like, I'm not scared he's going to leave me all the time. Like, I'm not worried. I'm not anxious. So it didn't feel like love as I knew it because I so associated love with that slight panic feeling of god what am i going to find out he's done today or <laughs> like how am i going to like be desperate for him and that desperation layer was gone i was just like oh i've just got this brilliant funny person who's just around all the time and if i say oh do you love me he go of course i love you what are you talking about rather than hold it back for some reason and actually i was the arsehole for the first couple years of our relationship because i had to learn or unlearn all the things I'd learned about being in relationships. It was, it's like, huh, you can just calmly be happy around each other. That's novel. And seven years in, you're not having an itch, so it's all good. It's no, got a very... Yeah. <laughs> and did you... The, I've heard you talk about some of the things that you do. I know you've got an allotment. Do you still have the allotment now I you've moved don't. house? Well, now I've got a garden. I've given up the allotment uh, to someone else. And is the... Because I've definitely, in lockdown, I'm lucky enough that I do have a garden, as a little garden, I should add, um, not, not a palatial one, but I definitely got into that in lockdown for the first time ever. Like, I just never had... The, it was almost a burden until lockdown. Yeah. I was like, oh, God, I should be doing something to the garden. And suddenly, and now I've got like flowers that come back because obviously when you plant bulbs, they do come back. So I'm like this year, my garden, like, I've hardly done anything. I'm like, oh my goodness, look at all those lovely things that are now two years in and looking yeah. so pretty. So just, and I mean, I'm a massive fan of garden. I'm near Hampstead Heath and I get, I spend so much oh, time no, outside. No. I did um, a speech the other day at the NEC in Birmingham, um, a, a sort of keynote speech for I can't remember what conference, but as I was leaving, as I was going up the escalators, they had these massive photos of forests to try and... And I was looking at the forest and the photos thinking, do you know, I'd just as soon actually just be in a forest right now. I don't want to be at the NEC. And all that's done is make me think I need to question my life choices. Why am I just leaving a keynote? I mean, obviously, I know why for the small amount of, that's you know, amazing. matter of, of money that I need to earn. But I was <laughs> thinking all I want to do is be in a forest because I love trees and I love outside. So does gardening and outside, do you use that as one of your kind of anchors when you're feeling shit? Yeah. And just and and also as a like maintenance daily maintenance of just popping out and planting some stuff i've done it even since i just only had a balcony and i got a um a little plastic greenhouse to go on the balcony so i could do seeds and stuff and again it was like around the time when i was completely failing to conceive growing little sprouts i was like i can grow something <laughs> and like just watching things change and i think a big thing about that especially if you're like you and you're like a natural attempting to overachieve mm -hmm. you can't rush plants mm -hmm. they will just take as much time as they take and there's something great about being forced to go at their pace that 
is like a frustrating satisfying if you know what I mean it's funny the joy and maybe this is um I I know I'm you know I think about 10 years older than you so I don't want to besmirch your age group by saying it's the same as mine but there is something as I've got older I've got um one of those I can't remember what they're called they're like little mini orchids they're really pretty they have loads of mini mini flowers and they sort of spider out and I've got um, one that wasn't doing very well. And I went to my garden centre to get a new one. And then I said, I've got one. And it looks like the leaves are lovely, but it's just stopped flowering. And they said, oh, no, they can take about a year or 18 months of flowering. So just keep it. And then I thought, well, I don't want it in the same place because it just looks horrible. So I'll put it up in my bedroom and hope it will come back to life. And then I'll get a different one for downstairs. Anyway, the one upstairs... It suddenly started sprouting quite beautiful little new bits, and they're about. And oh. I cannot tell you the joy every morning. Yeah. I see that orchid in my bedroom, and then I'm like, God, some people are waking up with hot lovers, and that's what's exciting <laughs> them. And I'm like, Oh, Radio Four's on, and look at my orchid. Uh, but it does but give nice. great joy, doesn't it? it sparks yeah. joy, a garden or a plant. I like now. My favourite thing is um, I collect all the seeds and keep them for next year so all the plants I'm growing this year and you dry them out do you have to dry them out for the next year you don't really have to like specifically dry them out I bought like a little bead box like a you know like hobby craft like for organizing buttons and beads or something like that yeah yeah that kind of thing and then I just put them all in their little compartments with a little sticky label to remind me what they are but I've never like dried them out in a specific dryer I think they just do it of their own accord I might do that well that might be my I always have a little takeout action idea from talking to people mine might be getting my bulbs into a hobby craft yeah. organizer well so. sunflowers are so easy to collect the seeds and so are marigolds and they're also really good germinators so they, I was not they... expecting this turn in the conversation and I'm absolutely <laughs> loving it and my they're mum like, will be very easy. delighted to be listening to this one <laughs> you just you get that joy of kind of going I didn't have to go out and buy anything and I've got all these new things popping out the floor it's like shopping without having to have earned any money it's like going into the back of your wardrobe and going oh my god that dress that I've never worn that is and there it is and I've got it although after lockdown I wouldn't be able to fit into it but that's another story (laughs) and do you so the other so gardening and going outside is something that helps you what are the other things that you do that are that do help you when you're or that have helped you because you have pulled yourself back from the brink of the really really gloomy dark time right so now it sounds like you manage those episodes without it getting quite as apocalyptic definitely my personal trainer and I'm aware I'm so aware of what a privileged dickhead I'm coming across as as like hey just don't go to work if you don't feel like it money comes from somewhere else right (laughs) but um again when I was first in that we were trying for a baby and I was so angry with my body for, for for betraying me I got a trainer and I still see her twice a week to this day. In fact, I'm seeing her after we finish today. I love that two half hour sessions a week where I'm not in charge at all. All I have to do is turn up and then she takes over for half an hour and physically tells me what to do. And I don't have a say in it. And I really enjoy that half hour twice a week where, you know, you know what it's like when you're, I'm entirely in charge of everything to do with my life. That's the bit people don't realise with what we do. I put the gigs, I write the words, I turn up and say them, I get myself home, then I switch on to all the domestic things that need doing around the house. Like, there's nobody else. I don't have a business partner. Like, it's exhausting. And so to have half an hour twice a week where I, I don't know anything about physical activity and exercise, and it's not... I'm not in charge for half an hour is just incredible. 
you got me at half an hour. I always assumed it was, I used to have a personal trainer um, years ago and it was always an hour and it was down the gym and it basically took me about two hours of my day by the time I got there. Does she come to you? Yeah, I do one a week on Zoom and then I do one a week where she comes to my house. I love it. So it's half an hour and she comes to yeah. you. Yeah. So and suddenly I, so I that do my workout doable. myself before she gets here. Yeah. And then like she turns up and we do a hit or we do some boxing or sometimes if I'm in a really bad mood and my personal trainer is, is so lovely. She's exactly if you picture to yourself a Brighton personal trainer and yogi instructor, that's who she is. I've got so her firmly will, in my mind's eye. Yeah, she's wonderful. So sometimes I will be like, babe, I'm in a really awful place. With, can we just do yoga today? And with three minutes notice, she'll just do half an hour of yoga with me. And she also knows that I'm not very good at getting into the spiritual side of yoga. So she does it all about my muscles. And it's all about stretching and pulling rather than she knows that I don't really get it when she's like, breathe into this thought it's not for me so it's like lean back how's that pulling on your calf is that quite good <laughs> that's okay, a big well, toe feeling Laura. let's start with that yeah and it <laughs> I'm so much more grounded and distracted by the physicality than by trying to take my brain to another place so, yeah. Does it help you it. feel? A friend of mine's just taken up on cold water swimming, well, a year ago. So she's been, and everyone I know who does that says it changes their life. And I totally believe it does. They lose me at six in the morning and cold. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> it works for them. But one of the things she said about the cold water swimming, she's my age. So sort of, you know, coming up to mid 50s. And she said she's it's the first time in her whole life she's felt completely unapologetic about her body she's not felt self-conscious oh, she's nice. not felt she said I'm not breathing in I see every type of shape and size she said I realize I'll literally sit there when I finish a swim sit on a on a chair in my swimming costume tummy however it looks and I couldn't give a shit and no one else could and actually that was where she had me the most I thought you know if I could get to that point I would be yeah. bloody delighted but has it changed your relationship with how you feel physically about yourself as well with the personal trainer or is it more of a mental release? I think I have I have a logical thought about my body. I don't think it's changed how I emotionally feel about my body. But like I I know that I'm strong now because I'm short and I do put on weight quite easily. And I have a very like I, I quite like my figure, but I'm a very soft looking person. Like I'm very cuddly and big boobs and big hips. Um, you basically look like a 50s pin-up. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, oh, Nora. thanks, babe. <laughs> I'll take that. I feel like Nora Batty. But well, maybe... you dress in that kind of vintage way sometimes. You rock that. You've got a waist, I, I do basically, like a Laura. Waist and I'm quite, yeah, I'm quite jealous. I've never That's had a waist. That's one of the joys of never having to be able to conceive is you do keep your waist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Several years of therapy, but I'm like, hey, a 50s dress still looks good. That's all right. That could be the name of your next show. Hey, I've still got yeah. my waist. Yeah. <laughs> what a waist. Um... <laughs> Uh, so that's actually quite I a think, good. Um, that's quite a good title for a show. Yeah, about, you can have yeah. that. You can. You, I can't have that because I haven't got a waist. People have come on and go, "What?" Yeah, you could definitely have that. So yes, yeah, so you were but, saying emotionally, you don't. Yeah. So there's certain exercises that my trainer knows um, really trigger me. Like, it, do you do C crunches? So it's sort of like a sit up. Yeah. But um, but those make me feel dreadful because my stomach 
pulls up in the middle of that sequence. Like when you watch people exercise, it's this flat stomach just creasing a little bit and it's like, oh, you've got one wrinkle across your stomach. Whereas that's not my reality of it. I've got like a big wadge of stomach. There are certain exercises in Pilates that I do and it's all mirrored. It's in a beautiful sort of mirrored studio. And I do, there are certain ones and then they're like, just adjust your position in the mirror. And I look over, I'm like, oh shit, that wasn't what I thought I looked like. You know, you've got a vision of yourself looking like the instructor and you're like, no. that's not quite that what's happening. I feel like a little bug that can't get back on its front or something, you know? Like, in the moment... Like I feel, a rocking ladybird. Yeah! I feel grotty and gross and I feel embarrassed and I, you know, it triggers all of those shame feelings of I don't look right and, and this isn't what a body looks like when it works out and all that stuff. But uh, as long as I do it, a little bit after the workout... I will logically realize with myself, well, whatever, you did it, babe. Like, you did it. You might not look like all the Instagram models, but you are doing the same things as them. And so, I, I like, I don't have that emotional rush of going, hey, whatever I look like. I'm still stuck in that idea that I don't look like a, you know, whatever. And, and I struggle with that a little bit. But knowing that I'm capable is... Um, is massive in in the after like when that filters through past the emotional response i think there's also something about i i run a lot that's my kind of thing more for mental health than anything else and there's something about it just being your strength of your body propelling you around i love the fact with running i don't take keys i don't take a phone I just literally go, it's just me, my trainers, obviously some clothes. I feel that's only fair given <laughs> I live in a built-up area. But I, there's something really empowering about it because I literally think my body is getting me round that route and I can do it and I can run up a hill and I can get home afterwards. And it's just, I don't think I look nice doing it, but I feel strong and proud yeah. of my body for getting me round, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think trying to learn to have an emotional response to how you feel instead of how you look is not something I've trained myself to do very well. It's not something that was ever in my upbringing. Like it never got commented on what I was capable of physically, whereas comments on what I look like. So I try not to beat myself up about the fact that I'm still pretty hung up on how I look, but I see photos of myself and videos of myself constantly. So I get that feedback way more than I get strength feedback. It's really hard, isn't it, doing what we do. And also the ones we see, because, you know, when we look on your website on my website there are pictures of us looking all groovy and beautiful and lovely and and then you're like yeah don't look at the 75 reels of film that did not ever make it but then do you find like my my nightmare is like i pay carla gowlett to take amazing photos of me and i look great and she does a great job and then and you're going to turn up and people go... <laughs> takes a snap of me doing a gig exactly. and i'm gurning and bent over and my ass. but then i think like we've also we've said on this podcast we are at our happiest, gurning, bent over, exactly. doing that stand-up. Like those are our favourite twenty minutes yeah. of the day every day. And then you see the photo evidence of it, and what you look like takes it all away. Like trying to train yourself to have an emotional response to to the feeling rather than the looking. If someone can work out how to do that, I'll pay them every penny I'll ever earn. I know it's interesting, isn't it? And also, you almost want to. You have those, you have people who sort of do those kind of piss take Instagram accounts, don't you? where they're sort of mimicking whoever was doing the yoga pose but with them with their real belly and, yeah. and I think I wish I could be one of those people as well who could actually just celebrate the bits that are, are a bit shit or do the kind of like this is I mean I do post after I've gone for a run looking sweaty and 
awful. I enjoyed your rainy mullet photo the other day. There you day. go. So <laughs> you see, yeah. So you know that it. I will, yeah. I will post the rainy mullet and looking like shit. But but at a moment when I'm feeling proud of myself because I have just done a thing I'm proud of, and it's like, yeah, this is how shit I look when I've just done that. Get over yourselves. Um, is there? I want to make sure that we have time to just talk about your upcoming book because um, that was what I've been wanting to get you on the podcast. And then when I heard about Pivot, your new book, I was like, I really want to get you on the podcast. So this is your. You've actually managed to write not just one book clop actually during lockdown which we were talking about at the start you're now right you're writing you've written two real proper books like not yeah. bullshitty books that I might try to write but proper books with plots and characters and I'm just in awe can you just tell Thank me before you. you just tell me about pivot what does it feel like when you hold your book that you've written for the first time when it arrives and you unwrap it and it's like I'm holding my book like kind of numb I, I feel a bit numb about book writing because if I'm honest, I think book writing is mad because because of coming from stand-up where, you know, when you're getting an Edinburgh show ready, you write a bit, you take it down to Top Secret or wherever and you try it out and you see if it's good and then you take that bit back and put it in the pile and then you keep doing that. With a book, you just write the whole thing and then and then the whole thing goes out and if people hate it, it's too late to change any of it. You haven't tried and I just my I find that mad <laughs> so you're just writing it no feedback well you get feedback from an editor I guess and then yeah. it's out there and it's you can't you change it because we're always no. changing it aren't we with our shows yes yeah. you can't send it out to 100 people and then get it back and go well they like that chapter but not that chapter and it's not working so you shift it around you just write it all and if you and the editor like it it just goes out that, and that's you can't it. unwrite that's the investment. it no and so that I found so difficult that I think I'm really proud of the book, but my response to it is going to be entirely based on feedback from it because I'm a feedback-based machine thanks to stand-up. I just only deal in did people like it. So I don't think I feel much about it yet until people start reading it and then I'll know what it's worth, if that makes sense. And it's out next month. It's out in June. What yes. date in June? 23rd. 23rd. So it's for pre-order now. Marvellous. And we will obviously have links uh, in the show notes so people can go ahead and order it. And just tell us um, just the kind of uh, brief synopsis of, as they say, during your GCSE English, a brief <laughs> synopsis of Pivot, if you'd be so kind. So it's about um, a lady who is in her mid to late 50s and she comes home one day to find her husband leaving her and she just goes oh fuck what do I have then like my kids have grown up and left home my husband's gone I don't have any hobbies what do I do and she starts a netball team with a load of other people looking for something in the local community so I wanted to write a story about women where they weren't mums or colleagues and there, there probably are loads of them, but I couldn't think of a single sports book about women that I knew of. And so I just thought sport is this amazing vehicle for bringing people together. Like you can just bring people from all sorts of backgrounds and lives and, and you know, plots together with sport. They don't have to have anything in common necessarily other than having all seen the thing for the tryouts and they turn up. So I wanted to sort of explore all of like women that had fallen through the cracks really that didn't really know what they were doing with their lives and all for different reasons so they've all sort of found each other 
And oh. I'm also exactly of the demographic you're writing about in terms of life phase, emptiness. I just can't play netball. But um, I love the <laughs> well, sound Well, neither of that. can my characters, to be fair. They That's are okay. dreadful, actually. <laughs> well, you've definitely <laughs> described my life apart from without the netball component. So I'll definitely be reading it. So it's out in June. Um, and just tell everyone what the name is of the uh, netball team. Um, the Hidden Skid Marks. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> just thought we'd like to get that it's just so people can get a sense of what they might expect from the book amazing so we'll put links to that and um also did want to just mention your podcast which i love national treasure with will duggan oh, and i love the fact you, d- you just did one at wookie hole which you and i yeah. as west country girls <laughs> i was like oh wookie hole i'd actually forgotten what it was like and then listening to yeah. you two go around it, i was like oh no i do remember that it's one that is one weird motherfucking place oh the paper mill i was just like oh in the little old arcade it just man so many summers as a child popping down there it was oh it It sounded like it hadn't changed much because i've not been since the 80s but do you think it's changed since the 80s well the caves and stuff no i don't think so and the paper not remodeled ancient caves no (laughs) they've added like a whole dinosaur bit and then they'd added a like a 4d cinema experience but in a sort of very wookie hole kind of a way, if you know what I mean, like it. Oh, I'm oh, dying to go. I, I take my kids. I've got a little brother. Um, their dad's had had another little kid who's he's eight now. And I always take if I want if I get an urge to do us because my kids are in their twenties now. If I get an urge to do a sort of thing, I, I haven't got any nephews and nieces. I know you took your nephew, so he becomes my sort of stooge, so oh. I can go and do weird <laughs> like, go to places like Legoland that I'm not allowed to really yeah. go to as a lone empty nest weirdo. <laughs> so um, I might take um, I might take Herbie down to Wookie Hole and see yeah. uh, see oh, what should. we discover. Um, I don't think my son, I don't think my uh, my 25-year-old will be up for it, so I'll have to borrow a small one. Namaste, motherfuckers! What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? I think, actually, it's the moment somebody saw my tweets and went, you're clearly an author, would you like a book deal? That was such a validating moment for me of going, all these things I thought about myself but nobody else seems to have thought so I wasn't sure if I was right somebody went you're brilliant with words why are you not an author and I kind of got to go oh yeah thank you I would like to do that I've got goosebumps that's a sign of a good namaste motherfucking moment (laughs) you have always uh, it's I think a lot of people um this podcast isn't all about comedians but we have plenty of comedians on and often people will say I'm either a kind of more of a writer comedian or I'm more of a performer and you definitely are both which I think is probably in part why you do so well on screen and off because it's quite hard to do both and not everybody can do both and you do seem very balanced in that also as a stand-up oh this is the nicest pick-me-up doing this podcast I feel like what with me and your personal trainer (laughs) you're going to be unbearable by lunchtime today (laughs) Your husband would be like, could you just be a bit more depressed, please? Yes, I went this morning, kind of. I did that with Callie and she just told me I was great. <laughs> I used to be a coach for years. I know how to build oh, people up on a Monday morning, which yeah. is when we're recording I'd like to be this. on this podcast every week, please. I'd like incredible. to have you every week, as we are the same person. <laughs> uh, and what would you pick, Laura, as your favourite joke? My favourite joke is is 
it was in a Reader's Digest when I was a child and my mum used to keep Reader's Digest by the toilet. I remember everyone's mum did and aunties. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd flip to the back, all the boring bits, I'd flip to the back and find the jokes and there was a joke in there that was a man walks into a bar with a huge lizard on his shoulder and says to the barman, I'll have a pint for me and a pint for my mate Tiny. And the barman's like, what? What? And he pours the pints and he sets it down and he says, look, mate, I've just got to ask though, why have you called that enormous thing tiny? And the bloke says, because it's minute. (laughs) And when you're a child and that's a joke written down, it makes no sense. Yeah, of course it wouldn't make sense. Because the minute, minute, if nobody said it out that, so I would read that joke over and over keep and over doing another again, poo so you could sit and look at yep. that joke again what the hell is going on with this joke i don't understand it at all and and now i think about it all the time in terms of like what's going to work on twitter what's going to work out loud and just why was i so fascinated by that as a child I it's just... funny the anatomy of jokes because you studied stand-up didn't you as part of your yeah. degree yeah i know yeah. mark simmons who i know you know and i i really like and anyone who's listening I'll, I'll get him on the podcast but he's a brilliant one-liner comic and he tests a lot of his on twitter but it's really funny how some of them do or don't work depending on how much of it relies on exactly that construct yeah. and whether it's the spelling so i know he has that where some of them just won't translate um one yeah. way or the other so yeah um so thank you for that and thank you for the very contemporary reference of readers digest books and toilets which has not come up on the podcast before but I think certain people of a certain age will appreciate it and um if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening what would it be so my life advice would be n- know what distracts you and know what relaxes you and don't worry if they're not stereotypical things that relax and distract you but knowing how to um, how to switch your brain off in different ways is the best thing you can ever do for yourself. So for me, learning about myself that television does nothing for me and is basically just me sitting and thinking over and over again, whereas gardening or PT or, or reading or cleaning is far more relaxing to me than trying to sit still and passively absorb something. And knowing, like sometimes reading won't distract me but gardening will like knowing the tricks that work on your brain and don't worry if they're weird or they're not the the average things but if you know how to give your brain what it's begging for then you'll have a much calmer experience with yourself That was Laura Lex. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do, and this week it is putting some seeds and bulbs into a hobby craft organizer. That's showbiz. Well, actually, that's all I've got the bandwidth to do because I'm running on empty after running round after a crazy puppy. Did I mention I've got a puppy? Anyway, that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review and recommend the show. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to broadcaster, podcaster and sometime comedian. Mr. Sean Keevney. I didn't get eaten up by what ifs. What if this doesn't work? You know, what job will I do if I can't do this? I sort of didn't think about it. 
Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers!